Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you little beauties. It's a Wednesday, halfway through the work week, and only two more days till Chillsville. And to help you along your way is me, your tale-teller. Today I'm sharing with you a story from the Round the Fire series. Your tale today is The Club-Footed Grocer, Part 1. These tales were written back in London 1908, and this is a quote straight from the book's preface. In the present collection of those that have been brought together, which are concerned with the grotesque and with the terrible, such tales as might well be read round the fire upon a winter's night. So descriptive. I just love the old school phrasing. So if you're like me, trying to keep warm whilst the Australian winds and rains beat at your door, then rug up, turn up the heat or light a fire, and let's listen to some old school tales. My uncle, Mr. Stephen Maple, had been at the same time the most successful and the least respectable of our family, so that we hardly knew whether to take credit for his wealth or to feel ashamed of his position. He had, as a matter of fact, established a large grocery in Stepany, which did a curious mixed business, not always, as we had heard, of a very savoury character, with the riverside and seafaring people. He was ship's chandler, provision merchant, and if rumour spoke truly, some other things as well. Such a trade, however lucrative, had its drawbacks, and was evident when, after twenty years of prosperity, he was savagely assaulted by one of his customers and left for dead. With three smashed ribs and a broken leg, which mended so badly that it remained forever three inches shorter than the other, this incident seemed, not unnaturally, to disgust him with his surroundings, for after the trial, in which his assistant was condemned to fifteen years' penal servitude, he retired from his business and settled in a lonely part of the north of England, whence, until that morning, we had never once heard of him, not even at the death of my father, who was his only brother. My mother read his letter aloud to me. If your son is with you, Ellen, and if he is as stout a lad as he's promised for when last I heard from you, then send him up to me by the first train after this comes to hand. He will find that to serve me will pay him better than the engineering, and if I pass away, though, thank God, there is no reason to complain as to my health, you will see that I have not forgotten my brother's son. Congleton is the station, and then a drive of four miles to Greta House, where I am now living. I will send the trap to meet the seven o'clock train, for it is the only one which stops here. Mind that you send him, Ellen, for I have very strong reasons for wishing him to be with me. Let bygones be bygones if there has been anything between us in the past. If you should fail me now, you will live to regret it. We were seated at either side of the breakfast table, looking blankly at each other and wondering what this might mean, when there came a ring at the bell and the maid walked in with a telegram. It was from Uncle Stephen. On no account let John get out at Congleton, said the message. 
He will find the trap waiting 7 o'clock evening train, setting bridge, one station further down line. Let him drive not to me, but Garth Farmhouse, six miles. There, he will receive instructions. Do not fail, only you to look to. That is true enough, said my mother. As far as I know, your uncle has not a friend in the world, nor has he ever deserved one. He has always been a hard man in his dealings, and he held back his money from your father at a time when a few pounds would have saved him from ruin. Why should I send my only son to serve him now? But my own inclinations were all for the adventure. If I have him for a friend, he can help me in my profession, I argued, taking my mother upon her weaker side. I have never known him to help anyone yet, said she bitterly. And why all this mystery about getting out at a distant station and driving to the wrong address? He has got himself into some trouble, and he wishes us to get him out of it. When he's used us, he will throw us aside, as he has done before. Your father might have been living now, if he had only helped him. But at last my arguments prevailed, for, as I pointed out, we had much to gain and little to lose, and why should we? The poorest members of our family go out of our way to offend the rich one? My bag was packed, and my cab at the door when there came a second telegram. Good shooting! Let John bring gun. Remember Steading Bridge, not Congleton. And so, with a gun case added to my luggage and some surprise at my uncle's insistence, I started off upon my adventure. The journey lies over the main northern railway as far as the station of Carnfield, where one changes for the little bright line which winds over the fells. In all England there is no harsher or more impressive scenery. For two hours I passed through desolate rolling plains, rising at places into low, stone-knitted hills with long, straight outcrops of jagged rock showing upon their surface. Here and there little grey-roofed, grey-wall cottages huddled into villages. For many miles at a time, no house was visible nor any sign of life save the scattered sheep which wandered over the mountainside. It was a depressing country, and my heart grew heavier and heavier as I neared my journey's end, until at last the train pulled up at the little village of Setting Bridge, where my uncle had told me to alight. A single ramshackle trap, with a country lout to drive it, was waiting at the station. Is this Mr. Stephen Maples? I asked. The fellow looked at me with eyes which were full of suspicion. What is your name? He asked, speaking a dialect which I will not attempt to reproduce. John Maple. Anything to prove it? I half raised my hand, for my temper is none of the best, and then I reflected that the fellow was probably only carrying out the directions of my uncle. For answer, I pointed to my name printed upon my gun case. Yes, yes, that is right. It's John Maple, sure enough, said he, slowly spelling it out. M-A-P-L-E. Get in, Meister, for we have a bit of a drive before us. The road, white and shining, like all the roads in that limestone country, ran in long sweeps over the fells. With low walls of loose stone upon either side of it, the huge moors mottled with sheep and with boulders rolled away in gradually ascending curves to the misty skyline. 
In one place, a fall of the land gave a glimpse of a great angle of distant sea, bleak and sad and stern were all my surroundings, and I felt under their influence that this curious mission of mine was a more serious thing than it had appeared when viewed from London. This sudden call for help from an uncle whom I had never seen and of whom I had heard little that was good. The urgency of it, his reference to my physical powers, the excuse by which he had ensured that I should bring a weapon, all hung together and pointed to some vague but sinister meaning. Things which appeared to be impossible in Kensington became very probable upon these wild and isolated hillsides. At last, oppressed with my own dark thoughts, I turned to my companion with the intention of asking some questions about my uncle, but the expression upon his face drove the idea from my head. He was not looking at his old, unclipped chestnut horse, nor at the road along which he was driving, but his face was turned in my direction, and he was staring past me with an expression of curiosity and, as I thought, of apprehension. He raised the whip to lash the horse and then dropped it again, as if convinced that it was useless. At the same time, following the direction of his gaze, I saw what it was which had excited him. A man was running across the moor. He ran clumsily, stumbling and slipping amongst the stones, but the road curved, and it was easy for him to cut us off. As we came up to the spot for which he had been marking, he scrambled over the stone wall and stood waiting, with the evening sun shining upon his brown, clean-shaved face. He was a burly fellow, and in bad condition, for he stood with his hands on his ribs, panting and blowing after his short run. As we drove up, I saw the glint of earrings in his ears. Say, mate, where are you bound for? He asked in a rough but good-humoured fashion. Farmer Purcell's at the Garth Farm, said the driver. Sorry to stop you. I thought as I would hail you as you passed, for if so be as you had been going my way, I should have made bold to ask you for a passage. His excuse was an absurd one, since it was evident that our little trap was as full as it could be. But my driver did not seem disposed to argue. He drove on without a word, and looking back, I could see the stranger sitting by the roadside and cramming tobacco into his pipe. A sailor? said I. Yes, Meister. We're not more than a few miles from Morecambe Bay, the driver remarked. You seemed frightened of him, I observed. Did I? said he dryly, and then after a long pause, maybe... I was. As to his reasons for fear, I could get nothing from him, and though I asked him many questions, he was so stupid, or else so clever, that I could learn nothing from his replies. I observed, however, that from time to time he swept the moors with a troubled eye, but the huge brown expanse was unbroken by any moving figure. At last, in a sort of cleft in the hills in front of us, I saw a long, low-lying farm building, the centre of all those scattered flocks. Garth Farm, said my driver. There is Farmer Percival himself, he added, as a man strolled out on the porch and stood waiting for our arrival. He advanced as I descended from the trap a hard, weather-worn fellow with light blue eyes and hair and beard like sun-bleached grass. 
in his expression I read the same surely ill will which I had already observed in my driver. Their malevolence could not be directed towards a complete stranger like myself. And so I began to suspect that my uncle was no more popular on the North Country Fells than he had been in Stepney Highway. You ought to stay here until nightfall. That's Mr. Stephen Maple's wish, said he curtly. You can have some tea and bacon if you like. It's the best we can give you. I was very hungry and accepted the hospitality in spite of the churlish tone in which it was offered. The farmer's wife and his two daughters came into the sitting room during the meal, and I was aware of a certain curiosity with which they regarded me. It may have been that a young man was a rarity in this wilderness, or it may be that my attempt at conversation won their goodwill, but they all three showed a kindness in their manner. It was getting dark, so I remarked that it was time for me to be pushing on to Greta House. You've made up your mind to go then, said the old woman. Certainly, I have come all the way from London. There's no one hindering you from going back there? But I've come to see Mr. Maple, my uncle. Oh well, no one could stop you if you want to go on, said the woman, and became silent as her husband entered the room. With every fresh incident, I felt that I was moving in an atmosphere of mystery and peril. And yet it was all so intangible and so vague that I could not guess where my danger lie. I should have asked the farmer's wife point blank, but her surely husband seemed to divide the sympathy which she felt for me and never again left us together. It's time you were going, mister, said he at last, and his wife lit the lamp upon the table. Is the trap ready? You'll need no trap. You'll walk, said he. How shall I know the way? William will go with you. William was the youth who had driven me up from the station. He was waiting at the door, and he shouldered my gun case and bag. I stayed behind to thank the farmer for his hospitality, but he would have none of it. I ask no thanks from Mr. Stephen Maple, nor any friend of his, said he bluntly. I am paid for what I do. If I was not paid, I would not do it. Go your way, young man, and say no more. He turned rudely on his heel and re-entered his house, slamming the door behind him. It was quite dark outside, with heavy black clouds drifting slowly across the sky. Once clear of the farm enclosure and out on the moor, I should have been hopelessly lost if it had not been for my guide, who walked in front of me along narrow sheep tracks, which were quite invisible to me. Every now and then, without seeing anything, we heard the clumsy scuffling of the creatures in the darkness. And at first my guide walked swiftly and carelessly, but gradually his pace slowed down, until at last he was going very slowly and stealthily, like one who walks light-footed and amid imminent menace. This vague, inexplicable sense of danger in the midst of the loneliness of the vast moor was more daunting than any evident peril could be, and I had begun to press him as to what it was that he feared, when suddenly he stopped and dragged me down among some coarse bushes which lined the path. His tug at my coat was so strenuous and imperative that I realized that the danger was a pressing one. And in an instant, I was squatting down beside him, as still as the bushes which shadowed us. It was so dark there that I could not even see the lad beside me. 
It was a warm night, and a hot wind puffed in our faces. Suddenly, in this wind, there came something homely and familiar, the smell of burning tobacco. And then a face, illuminated by the glowing bowl of a pipe, came floating towards us. The man was all in shadow. But just that one dim halo of light with the face which filled it, brighter below and shading away into darkness above, stood out against the universal blackness. A thin, hungry face, thickly freckled with yellow over the cheekbones, blue, watery eyes, and ill-nourished, light-coloured moustache. A peaked, yachting cap. That was all that I saw. He passed us, looking vacantly in front of him, and we heard the steps dying away the long path. Who was it? I asked, as we rose to our feet. I don't know. The fellow's continual profession of ignorance made me angry. Why should you hide yourself then? I asked sharply. Because Meister Maple told me. He said that I were to meet no one. If I met anyone, I should get no pay. You met that sailor on the road? Yes, and I think he was one of them. One of whom? One of the folk that have come on the fells. They are watching Greta House, and Meister Maple is afraid of them. That's why he wanted us to keep clear of them, and that's why I've been a-trying to dodge them. Here was something definite at last. Some body of men were threatening my uncle. The sailor was one of them. The man with the peaked cap, probably a sailor also, was another. I bethought me of Stephanie Highway and of the murderous assault made upon my uncle there. Things were fitting themselves into a connected shape in my mind when a light twinkled over the fell and my guide informed me that it was Greta. The place lay in a dip among the moors, so that one was very near it before one saw it. A short walk brought us up to the door. I could see little of the building save that the lamp, which shone through a small latticed window, showed me dimly that it was both long and lofty. The low door under an overhanging lintel was loosely fitted, and light was bursting out of each side. The inmates of this lonely house appeared to be keenly on their guard, for they had heard our footsteps and we were challenged before we reached the door. Who is there? cried a deep, booming voice, and urgently, Who is it, I say? It's me, Meister Maple. I have brought the gentleman. There was a sharp click, and a small wooden shutter flew open in the door. The gleam of a lantern shone upon us for a few seconds. Then the shutter closed again. With a great rasping of locks and clattering of bars, the door was opened and I saw my uncle standing, framed in that vivid yellow square cut out of the darkness. He was a small, thick man, with a great rounded bald head and one thin border of gingery curls. It was a fine head, the head of a thinker. But his large white face was heavy and commonplace, with a broad, loose-lipped mouth and two hanging dewlaps on either side of it. His eyes were small and restless, and his light-coloured lashes were continually moving. My mother had said once that they reminded her of the legs of a woodlouse, and I saw at the first glance what she meant. I heard also that in Stepney, he had learned the language of his customers, and I blushed for our kinship as I listened to his villainous accent. So, nephew, said he, holding out his hand. Come in, come in, man. Quick, and don't leave the door open. Your mother said you were grown a big lad, and my word... She has a right to say so. Here's a half-crown for you, William. And you can go back again. 
put the things down. Here, Enoch, take Mr. Jones's things and see that his supper is on the table. As my uncle, after fastening the door, turned to show me into the sitting room, I became aware of his most striking peculiarity. The injuries which he had received some years ago had, as I have already remarked, left one leg several inches shorter than the other. To atone for this, he wore one of those enormous wooden soles to his boots, which are prescribed by surgeons in such cases. He walked without a limp, but his tread on the stone flooring made a curious clack-click, clack-click, as the wood and the leather alternated. Whenever he moved, it was to the rhythm of his singular castanet. The great kitchen, with its huge fireplace and carved settle corners, showed that this dwelling was an old-time farmhouse. On one side of the room, a line of boxes stood all corded and packed. The furniture was scant and plain. But on a trestle table in the center, some supper, cold meat, bread, and a jug of beer was laid for me. An elderly manservant, as manifest a cockney as his master, waited upon me, while my uncle, sitting in a corner, asked me many questions as to my mother and myself. When my meal was finished, he ordered his man, Enoch, to unpack my gun. I observed that two other guns, old rusted weapons, were leaning against the wall beside the window. It's the window I'm afraid of, said my uncle in the deep, reverberant voice, which contrasted oddly with his plump little figure. The door's safe against anything short of dynamite, but the window's a terror. <laughs> Don't walk across the light. You can duck when you pass the lattice. For fear of being seen? I asked. For fear of being shot, my lad. That's the trouble. Now come and sit beside me on the trestle there, and I'll tell you all about it, for I can see that you are the right sort and can be trusted. His flattery was clumsy and halting, and it was evident that he was very eager to consolate me. I sat down beside him, and he drew a folded paper from his pocket. It was a Western Morning News, and the date was ten days before. The passage over which he pressed a long black nail was concerned with the release from Dartmoor of a convict named Elias, whose term of sentence had been remitted on the account as his defense as a warder who had been attacked in the quarries. The whole account was only a few lines long. Who is he then? I asked. My uncle cocked his distorted foot into the air. That's is the mark, said he. He was doing time for that. How he's out and after me again. But why should he be after you? Because he wants to kill me. Because he'll never rest, the worrying devil, until he has had his revenge on me. It's this way, nephew. I've no secrets for you. He thinks I've wronged him. For argument's sake, or suppose I have wronged him. And now him and his friends are after me. Who are his friends? My uncle's boom sank suddenly to a quietened whisper. Sailors, said he. I knew they would come when I saw that ear paper. And two days ago, I looked through that window and three of them were standing, looking, looking at the house. It was after that that I wrote to your mother. They've marked me down and they're waiting for him. But why not send for the police? My uncle's eyes avoided mine. Police are no use, said he. It's you that can help me. What can I do? I'll tell you. 
I'm going to move. That's what all these boxes are for. Everything will soon be packed and ready. I have friends at Leeds. And I shall be safer there. Not safe, mind you, but safer. I start tomorrow evening, and... If you will stand by me, until then I will make it worth your while. There's only Enoch and me to do everything. But we shall have it already. I promise you. By tomorrow evening. The cart will be around then, and you and me, and Enoch, and the boy William can guard the things as far as Congleton Station. Did you see anything of them on the fells? Yes, said I. A sailor stopped us on the way. Ah, I knew they were watching us. That was why I asked you to get out at the wrong station and to drive to Purcells instead of coming here. We are blockaded, that's the word. And there was another, said I. A man with a pipe. What was he like? Thin face, freckles, a peaked. My uncle gave a hoarse scream. That's him! That's him! He's come! God be merciful to me, a sinner! He went click-clacking about the room with his great foot like one distracted. There was something piteous and baby-like in that big, bold head, and for the first time I felt a gush of pity for him. Come, uncle, said I. You are living in a civilized land. There is a law that will bring these gentry to order. Let me drive over to the county police station tomorrow morning, and I'll soon set things right. But he shook his head. He's cunning, and he's cruel, said he. I can't draw a breath without thinking of him, because he buckled up three of my ribs. He'll kill me this time, sure. He'll kill me this time, sure. There's only one chance. We must leave what we have not packed, and... We must be off first thing tomorrow morning. Great God, what's that? A tremendous knock upon the door had reverberated through the house, and then another and another. An iron fist seemed to be beating upon it. My uncle collapsed into his chair. I seized a gun and ran to the door. Who's there? I shouted. There was no answer. And this is where we'll stop for now. Part 2 This Friday, mates. Well, that began to quickly escalate, didn't it? I find it interesting that his uncle, who was purported to have no friends, actually has people he calls friends, and in fact, those people would be willing to take him in during this crisis. And right now, it's difficult for me to think that this man is nothing but a man fearing for his life, seeking the company of his family for protection. When you hear stories about people in the past, their judgment of them, and the actions they take, you're listening to it from a lens that isn't your own, and potentially not entirely accurate. Right now, despite what the mother has said, his actions have not aligned to that of a person who was completely callous, rude, or uncaring. In fact, if he truly didn't care, the uncle would have put him in harm's way at some point to ensure his protection, either waiting outside or going out hunting with a rifle to protect him perhaps from something that waits for him outside the house. What I'm getting at here is, at the minute, the uncle doesn't seem unreasonable despite what we know of him, and the actions toward our protagonist's father could be for a particular reason, an aspect of the writing I found really interesting, in that the author set us up with that perspective going in on this adventure. Folks, I'm keen to finish this tale off to find out what happens, and this Friday, I'll be doing just that. So join me then. Now, for those of you who are super duper kind, and support this podcast with Patreon donations. Every dollar you do that heads my way is funneled back into the podcast. 
and for that I'm grateful. Let me talk about what I'm actually doing with some of the money. I'm paying for a new WordPress theme for the new website, continuing my high-quality music subscriptions and sound effects, continuing my hosting on SoundCloud and Audioboom, purchase the template that my new YouTube video is going to be using, securing Photoshop on an annual basis, and working with even better sound recovery tools for old-time radio stories, plus so much more. Patreon supporters, that's all you. Your support, boom, straight into doing bloody marvellous stuff. So thank all of you for doing this. Now for my mini stories to my Patreon supporters, today I'm going to do something very different and really weird. Something that I feel no one out there would have ever done for their Patreon supporters, and that is assign you different kinds of campfires or fireplace types that I feel reflects your awesomeness and your kind support. Essentially, what does your fireplace say about you, or rather, your fireplace horoscope? Let me initiate this potential train wreck of a segment with my epic Ode Night Tea Titans. Maya, wood-burning fireplace, traditional open hearth. Main advantages. 1. The original fireplace that started it all. 2. Hearing the crackling of wood and the smell of the fireplace. 3. Creating an ambience and atmosphere like no other. And 4. Authentic and genuine. Translation. A person who loves their home and spending time with their loved ones. Whether it's family, friends or the pets they have. They are a caring bunch. Someone who is authentic and appreciates the traditional aspects of life and has a degree of love for nature. Solstra, electric fireplace heating coils. Main advantages, number one, effective and efficient heating. Number two, modern style and technologically advanced. Number three, multiple choices and a large range of options. Translation, a person whose passion is focused on the new, taking steps in different directions and seeking unique adventures. The choices out there in the world are endless and this type of person enjoys the varied options. A go-getter. Now for my white tea warlords. I own cows, the gas fireplace. Main advantages. Number one, low cost and easy to install. Number two, heat is so effective it goes from room to room. And number three, high level of safety features. Translation, a person who enjoys life as it comes, zero stress and a relaxed attitude that knows that a job gets done in time and there's no need to rush it. Easy to get along with, and a pleasant attitude. Lee Bauer, hanging fireplace. Main advantages? Number one, reinvention of the old. Number two, effectively spreads heat throughout the whole house. Number three, modern finish with a distinct design. Translation, a person who knows what they want and how to get it, understands the rules of life and business, whilst also having the discipline to get there. Mates, what do you think? Take this with a pinch of salt. This is more for a bit of fun and silliness, but I do hope you like it. Let me know what you lovelies think either way. I've also learned a lot more about fireplaces than I ever thought I'd need to. <laughs> and of course, my brilliant El Grey Enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow, thank you, you legends that support this show. Seriously, you're amazing. No matter which level of Patreon support that I receive on this podcast, you're helping every step of the way to build this show and improve it. 
If you think you'd like to be part of something awesome like this podcast, visit my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT and take a look at what tiers there are. And if you have any questions, reach out to me via email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Thank you so much. And as always, till next we meet.